This is episode 92 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are the different types of prepping in preppers, rice storage, the most affordable storage calories in the world, and tooth abscesses in austere settings. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, let's go ahead and get started. First article today comes to us from SurvivalistPrepper.net. And uh, again, uh, I've read their articles before. Uh, Dell and Lisa over there have a podcast, a Survivalist Prepper podcast. And um, part of his, uh, you know, putting the podcast out, he does a, a big uh, article, you know, that goes along with it. And that, that complements the um, the the podcast, and so uh, I wanted to go ahead and, and read it because it's a lot of good information, things to uh, to consider. So let's go ahead and start reading this one. If you were to ask the average person who knows nothing about preparedness what a prepper is, you are bound to get an off the wall answer. Mainstream society has taught them what their definition of prepper should be. The truth is, there isn't one type of prepper. There are so many different aspects that go into preparedness, and everyone chooses to prepare differently. While there are those that take preparedness to the next level, good or bad, most of us are just trying to do the best we can. Most people think preppers are waiting for the world to end, but this is not the case. We prepared for Tiatwaki, the end of the world as we know it, as we know it, being the key word in that phrase. We prepare for survival. This could mean surviving the week until the next paycheck comes in or surviving a natural disaster. We prepare for the S to hit the fan, not a sledgehammer hitting the fan. If the proverbial fan is clogged with doo-doo, it might be fixable. If a sledgehammer smashes it, it's game over for the fan. This week in the show, Lisa and I talked about the reasons why you can't lump all preppers into one category. Every person is different because of their age, finances, location, and the ability or their ability and preppers are no different. Because of shows like Doomsday Preppers and the mainstream media, the word prepper has a negative connotation to some people. If you have any food storage at all or you are prepared for a disaster scenario, you might be one of those crazy preppers. We use the term prepper all the time online because it's a way to find the information we are looking for, but our everyday lives are a little different. Because of operational security and concerns about how people are going to react, we don't go out and advertise we are preppers. In short, you can take the prepper tag or leave it. I personally don't mind it, but some people who do the very same thing as us don't want the prepper label put on them. If you ask someone who lived 100 years ago if they were a prepper, they would laugh at you and say it's called life. Sometimes I wonder what it is that makes us care about preparedness. While some people are happy in their oblivion, I think this is partly to do with how our brains are wired. And not because we are afraid, we choose to be proactive and responsible about life, while others just cross their fingers and take it as it comes. Why we start to prepare and why we continue to prepare are two completely different things. The reason we became interested in preparedness are different for everyone. For some people, it was living through a disaster, and some people see the writing on the wall. 
We continue to prepare because we realize things are not getting better. They are slowly getting worse. Even if nothing large-scale happens in my lifetime, eventually it will. If I can pass on even just a little preparedness knowledge to my children, I consider it worthwhile. Another huge factor is that we choose to question everything coming from the mouth of the mainstream media. Most people take everything they see on TV as fact. We know better. These days, the news is about ratings, propaganda, and pushing agendas on both sides of the aisle. In the show this week, we also talked about how we prepare. Some of us just can't do what others can do, but that doesn't mean we give up. Some people can afford all the cool stuff like years of food storage or uh, a bad A bug out vehicle. Most of us don't. Some people have the time and finances to form a prepper group that meets weekly, but again, most of us can't. As it is with everything in life, we can only do what we can do. If you live in an urban area, you aren't going to be raising cattle. This doesn't mean you are screwed. It just means you need to think about alternatives. Some people set a goal to move to a more rural area, and some people have no desire to do that. Another reason you can't lump all preppers into one category is that we are all pre preparing in different ways and are at different stages in preparedness. Here are seven, diff seven different prepper types that I came up with. If you can think of any others, leave a comment below. The lifestyle prepper. The lifestyle prepper can be broken down into several categories. How far we can go depends on our situation. For some people, this means homesteading, and for those in a suburban or urban area, it's food storage and bug out planning. Each person's situation is different, and the lifestyle prepper does what they can with what they have. Anyone who has been at this for a couple of years is a lifestyle prepper, regardless of their living situation. The extreme prepper. To me, the extreme prepper falls into two different categories. The first category is people who have the funds to get all the cool toys we wish we could. The second is people who focus solely on one disaster scenario. While I wouldn't mind having the finances to do and buy everything I wanted for preparedness, I would make sure my preparedness plans were well-rounded. It drives me crazy when I hear people say, I'm preparing for. What I hear is, I'm not preparing for this and that. The Gateway Prepper at one point or another, we have all been the gateway prepper. This is where we all start. The reason we became interested in preparedness are different, but we all face the same challenges at first. The gateway prepper is timid and not sure which direction to go. The best thing for the gateway prepper to do is find some lifestyle preppers to get their information from. Doing this will help them avoid the fear porn and misinformation. Survivalist or bushcraft this is where I used to fall before Lisa got me, sort of made me, more interested in preparedness. Quite a few of us have grown up camping, hiking, and roughing it, as my mom called it. While I am not, no Dave Canterbury, I do love the outdoors and learning new skills. The reason this fits in so well with preparedness is that roughing it aspect. Preparedness teaches you how to survive if everything goes away, and wilderness skills teach us the very same. A stay-at-home prepper. Some families have one parent that goes to work every day and one that stays home and takes care of the family. The person who stays at home is the one who does most of the family planning. Making sure the house runs smoothly and the children are taken care of is the job of the stay-at-home parent. The same holds true in any disaster scenario where that is a personal doomsday or whether that is personal doomsday or local scale disaster. The closet prepper. The closet prepper is someone who is unsure about prepping and doesn't want to let anyone know what they are doing. 
This could be from fear or ridicule or a fear of someone finding out what they have. To some extent, we are all or should be closet preppers. Operational security is very important because we don't want everyone in the neighborhood coming off, coming over for handouts. The wannabe prepper. Because anyone can say anything they want on the internet these days, it's tough to figure out how honest anyone is being. These keyboard warriors are always right and always have something better than you. This type of person should be ignored because no matter how much someone else has or knows, it isn't going to affect you one bit. This is also a dangerous type of prepper to be because when the S hits the fan, all their talk means nothing. All right, so just a, a good article just to kind of reflect on and uh, kind of see where you're at. And if you're new to preparedness, there's some information to kind of think about, you know, where you're going, where you're heading, uh, and maybe where you fall into line. And definitely uh, you might want to go listen to that podcast over at the Survivalist Prepper. All right. So let's go ahead and move on to the next one. This uh, this article, this next one, it's it's a really good article. It's on rice storage, uh, but it's a very thorough article, and I think one that everyone should take into consideration. And I really do believe everyone. I mean, I, I believe your first food storage should be that you have a deep pantry and you use cans and you know you go that route and you plan out your meals. Uh, I definitely believe that, but I think the next food storage, the the, the thing that is the most um, economical for those that are even you know on a budget before you get into freeze dried and dehydrated and MREs and all that kind of stuff, I think you should be storing rice and beans in mylar uh, bags inside of. Um, you know, buckets, food grade buckets, or you know, Home Depot buckets, whatever. Uh, I, I think that should be your first, your first stop. Um, it's it's very economical and uh, goes a long, long ways. And, and so you're going to get a little bit of that from this article. This article comes to us from SkilledSurvival.com, and like I said, it's a very thorough article. So let's go ahead and start reading this one here. Rice is boring. Rice is just a filler, right? A basic grain with barely any flavor. White unseasoned rice is nearly tasteless. Rice cakes, need I say more? But today I'm going to convince you rice is one of the most amazing, nearly perfect, long-term storage foods. When first building your food storage supply, you must decide what you're going to store in bulk and how you're going to store it. The truth of the matter is, building a long-term food supply is hard. For one, most foods spoil quickly. Even foods stuffed full of preservatives will eventually spoil. And second, finding enough storage space for a large stockpile can be difficult. However, rice kills both these birds with one delicious, healthy, cheap stone. Leaving rice out of your pantry is a mistake for both everyday users and survival situations. Even if you hate rice, the fact is, it's still one of the best survival foods known to man. But storing rice properly for the long haul can still be troublesome. I've seen my fair share of rice gone bad. I still get the nightmares about maggots in my basmati bags. It's not pretty, and it's a real bummer. Note, the following video has some language. Skip if that sort of stuff offends you. So the title of the, um, the video is, Look What I Found in My Rice from Walmart. There are uh, a lot of, uh, there's a couple of videos in here and a lot of links that you'll want to check out. All right, continuing on. Luckily, rice storage is straightforward if you know what you're doing. And there are only a few things to remember before filling your emergency stockpile with 50-pound bags of rice. 
and by the end of this article you'll know how to do it right because it would be a damn shame to stock up on a bunch of rice only to find it's gone bad before you ate it or worse full of maggots. But first let me answer this question, why store rice at all? Why not focus on other dried grains like wheat? The honest answer is you should stock up on both, but rice is the perfect food for storage and the perfect food for emergencies, simple as that. It's why rice is so popular around the world and has been for centuries. It's used as a base cuisine in uncountable cultures. Spain, Mexico, China, Japan, Hawaii, India, Chile, the list goes on and on. Because rice is packed full of carbs, making rice metabolically similar to potatoes, pasta, and white bread. These dense carbs make it an excellent source of energy and filling at the same time. Rice complements most proteins as well, like those found in beans and nuts, so they can be used to create a complete protein meal, which is the best kind. They provide energy on a long-term basis, keep you full, and do not result in crashing. In other words, complete proteins stick to your ribs, so the term eating rice and beans definitely has real merit, especially as a survival food. But beyond being healthy, there are monetary benefits to storing it too. Rice is one of the most cost-effective foods for survival storage. Rice is one of the cheapest calories to buy in bulk. In packs, it packs a lot of calories in a small compact space since it swells to three times its size when cooked. You can easily find up to 50-pound bags of rice at grocery stores or bulk markets at reasonable prices. Of course, different varieties of rice have different prices, but generally speaking, a pound of plain white rice costs between 50 cents and $1. A pound of rice equates to approximately 10.5 servings, so a 50-pound bag of rice buys you 252 servings for at most $30. I have a 50-pound bag of white rice in my pantry right now. It label says it has 252 servings, and each serving has about 160 calories. So if you multiply 252 by 160, you get over 40,000 calories in a single 50-pound bag. That's only .00075 cents per calorie. Or another way to look at it is a mod moderately active adult male needs about 2,500 calories per day in calorie replacement. It would only cost $1.87 fives rounded up to $1.88 for an equivalent amount of rice to replace those 2,500 calories. The bottom line is rice is an excellent bang for your buck when looking to stock up on a lot of calories for food. And using rice as a primary source of calories saves you from having to use other more expensive food items as quickly. Rice adds a high calorie filling to your meals so your expensive portions of protein don't have to be as large. Allergen free grain and as if all that it wasn't enough, rice is also considered an allergen-free grain. So you rarely have to worry about allergic reactions or feeding to someone who might have allergies. It can be eaten without any fear of anaphylaxis. Now on to the main event. Here is another plus to storing rice. If done correctly, it will remain edible for decades. But there are a few rules and precautions you must take into account to achieve these long-term results, and there are three main ways for rice to go bad. Rodents, bugs, and mold. Let's cover each of these issues next. Rodents and small animals are always on the search for a free meal. Rats, mice, squirrels, ferrets, weasels, raccoons, etc. are all expert scavengers looking for vulnerable stockpiles. Rodents, in particular, are excellent at gnawing. They have large, sharp 
continuous growing incisors, these chisel-like teeth are perfectly designed to chew through weak storage containers, and once they're in, they will feast. Not only will eventually consume all of your grains, they tend to crap where they eat. So even if you lose some of your rice inventory due to rodent consumption, no one wants to eat and cook food that has rat, rats wallowing in it. Yuck. But fortunately, there are two preventative measures you can take against this nasty fate. First, do everything you can to prevent rodents and small critters from gaining entry into your storage location. Traps, poisons, metal strips, cats or dogs are all valid ways to control and prevent these nasty critters from making your storage location their new home. The second way to protect your rice stockpile is to put the rice into secondary hard containers. Containers hard enough even these expert chewers can't penetrate. We'll discuss your storage container options in more detail shortly, but this second line of defense helps protect your food even if rodents gain entry into your storage room. Doing, doing both helps to ensure your rice storage doesn't become critter food. First of all, you must seal your rice from bugs and insects. Bugs like to crawl into the grains and lay their tiny eggs. Eggs you won't notice until it's far, far too late. So late, in fact, you may have even eaten some bugs some bug eggs in the past without knowing it, and there's nothing more terrifying than digging into your basmati only to find it squirming. There are only two times critter eggs can find their way into your rice, either before you buy it or after. That's it. It's either one or the other. So let's start with eggs that may be hiding in your bag of rice the day you bring it home from the store, because sometimes they're already there when you buy it. Gross, but true. The good news is there's a simple way to prevent any bug bug eggs buried in your newly purchased rice from hatching into maggots. Simply place your rice in a deep freezer for a week before placing it into long-term storage containers. Low freezing temperatures will kill any eggs hiding in your rice at the time of purchase. Now, to prevent bugs from entering into your rice after it's in storage is to use airtight containers. We'll go into more detail shortly about which containers are best, but for now, just know tight, strong lids will prevent new bugs from making a nest in your rice. Next up is mold. Mold will turn your dry, edible rice into fuzzy green mush. Obviously, you want to avoid this fate. Now, to combat mold growth in the first place, you only need to know a couple of simple facts. Mold requires these four items to grow. Organic material, such as a food source, warmth, moisture, oxygen. So by removing any of these essential items, you'll prevent mold and in turn prevent rice spoilage. Re remove organic material. Now we can't remove the first item in the list. The organic material is the food you're storing. So yeah, you can prevent mold by not storing any food, but that's opposite of our goal here. Two and three, remove warmth and control moisture. The next two items, warm and moisture, tend to grow, go together. This Think tropical environments. Mold does well in rainforests, but not so well in deserts or frozen tundras. So you can take advantage of this information. The rice you buy is in dried, in dried grain form, so there's normally very little moisture in the rice the day you bring it home. However, if your rice gets wet while sitting on a basement floor or in a room where temperatures and humidity remain high for long periods of time, the rice will absorb this moisture and likely grow mold. So the way to prevent this outcome is to control the temperature and humidity levels of the room you plan to store your rice. There are a variety of ways to achieve this outcome. For small amounts of rice, you could just put it in a freezer, but this has two problems. First, if you want to store a lot of rice, you'll likely won't have enough freezer space to hold it all. 
And if the power goes out in a disaster, your freezer stops freezing. So a better solution is to use a basement or root cellar. Underground locations stay cooler all year long than above ground ones. However, if you're going to use a basement or underground storage cellar, never leave your bags of rice directly on the floor. The floor of a basement is the first place to get wet in a flood since they are the low points of your home. If your rice gets wet in flood or even a leaky pipe, you can kiss your hard-earned rice stash goodbye. Another option is to control the humidity the storage room by, in the storage room by using a dehumidifier. These units are designed to remove moisture from the air, turn that moisture into water that you, dire- that you direct to a drain. Low humidity is a nice feature to add to any food stockpile location, especially if you live in an area that tends to remain humid year-round, like Florida or Southern California. But even if it only get but even if it only gets humid seasonally in your local or quality dehumidifier is a nice insurance policy for your emergency stockpile. However, dehumidifiers like freezers take energy to operate. So if you're not running it on an off-grid alter- alternative energy source, such as a solar or even biogas, then it then if disaster strikes and power goes out for the long term you'll no longer be able to control your stockpile's humidity levels. If this is your situation, you'll want to move on to the next option for mold prevention, oxygen removal. Another best practice to prevent spoilage is to remove the fourth item in the mold requires list, oxygen. In order to pull this one off, you need to completely seal the rice from outside air, otherwise known as airtight packaging. Then you add a few oxygen absorbers to the container before you seal it up. The oxygen absorbers then then, as you can probably guess, absorb the oxygen. The more effective, affordable, and surefire way to get an airtight seal is to use mylar bags. Mylar is a material originally designed for use in space but has amazing properties that are perfect for long-term food storage. So, to be clear, put your rice in large mylar bags, drop a few oxygen absorbers in, completely seal up the mylar bag, mylar, and let the combo of an airtight seal and oxygen absorber to work their magic. Here's how to calcul- calculate the right amount of oxygen absorbers you should add. So the name of this uh, video is selecting the proper oxygen absorber sizes when storing food. If this is done right, your rice will no longer be exposed to any oxygen, and since mold cannot grow without it, your rice becomes uh, safe from spoilage. Okay, so those are the main ways to prevent mold from spoiling. So now let's take a more detailed look at your bulk storage container options. This one's fairly straightforward. The easiest and simplest airtight storage container for rice or any dried grain are food-grade plastic buckets with lid, lids. You can get these uh, you can get these at reasonably prices, usually under $15 each. They are hard, thick plastic, so you don't have to worry about rodents chewing through them. Each bucket can hold about five gallons of rice, and they can be stacked up to save money. And even if you happen to accidentally leave one on the floor in a few inches of water, the plastic is able to keep the contents of the container dry. So basically, these buckets are hard to beat for your long-term food storage needs. However, maybe you're not looking to store that much rice yet. Well, there's a convenient rice storage option for a smaller stockpile and one that helps dispense the rice as well. Rice dispenser storage unit. So there's a link there for you. Honestly, the food grade buckets work just as well and better for bulk storage and will save you from buying a specialty food dispensing container. 
or if you want to save some serious dollars, you could go with used milk jugs or so soda bottles to store dried rice. But these are softer plastics rodents can chew through given enough time. Here's a good video putting the food grade bucket storage plan all together. Food grade buckets, mylar bags, and oxygen absorbers. Uh, the title of that video is Urban Survival Long-Term Food Storage. One note of caution, pre-cooked instant rice should never be kept in your survival food pantry. It will spoil. So dried rice is the only viable option for long-term storage. But dried rice is kept in ideal conditions will last almost indefinitely. This is a quality very few foods have. There's only one exception to the indefinitely rule. Yes, basmati, basmati rice, jasmine rice, arborio rice, and wild rice all fine for emergency storage, but not brown rice. Brown rice, which is regarded as healthier, has higher oil content than other strains of rice. Because of this small difference, it tends to spoil in a pantry sooner, in as little as 4 to 6 months, and will go bad even in a freezer after about 12 to 18 months. So the shortened shelf life means survivalists should leave the brown rice out of their long-term emergency food stockpile. Some people cook a lot of rice at once and then save it for use throughout the week. Pre-cooking is an easy way to mix up your meals and add a healthy side, but unfortunately cooked rice doesn't last very long. If cooked rice is left out on a countertop, cooked rice will last for about 2-3 to three hours before it starts to go bad. Storing in a refrigerator extends the shelf life to 4-6 to six days, and keeping cooked rice in the freezer will keep it fresh for about 6 months. Keeping cooked rice stored in a sealed container helps prolong its shelf life too, but generally it's almost always best to cook your rice per serving to avoid waste, and luckily there are few, few foods easier to prepare than rice. Another fabulous characteristic of rice is how simple it is to cook. Many people use electric rice cookers. These cook the rice perfectly and eliminate excess moisture without any human endpoint. They are very convenient machines and 100% unnecessary. All you ever need to cook rice is a pot and some water. Here is the magic equation. One cup of rice equals two cups of water. Wash the rice until the water runs clear. Add it to your pot. Add the required amount of water and put it on a stove to cook. Add a few drops of olive oil, salt, or a small dollop of butter for extra flavor. Stir occasionally. After the rice grains have swelled up, taste a small sample to check if the rice is ready. Once soft, simply strain any excess water and the rice is ready to serve. It's that easy. As I mentioned earlier, rice is an incredible addition to almost any dish. But eating rice on its own can result in nutritional de nutrition deficiencies. Rice is straight up carbs and it can be unhealthy to overdo carbs in your diet. So whenever you can, try to eat rice in combination with other foods. Foods that work well with rice are protein like eggs, meat, tofu, or beans. The trouble is, if you're storing rice for an emergency or apocalypse situation, finding a lot of other storable emergency foods to pair with your rice can be difficult. Believe it or not, people make this step harder than it needs to be. I combine rice with all sorts of delicious foods when I'm camping or backpacking. So here are seven of my favorite rice survival recipes. Some are dried foods, some are canned, but all have been tried and tested in the backcountry without a kitchen. Just because you're eating survival food in an emergency doesn't mean you have to eat tasteless, joyless food. Number one, beans and rice. 
a self-explanatory meal and one that is sure to fill you up and provide lasting energy. Rice and beans is a staple side in most Central American countries for this reason. No matter whether they're refried beans, black beans, garbanzo beans, pinto beans, or kidney beans, simply open up a can of beans, heat it, and mix it with, with them into your rice. One of the most classic camp meals ever devised. Number two, tangy chicken rice. Mix rice with unsweetened lemon pow- lemonade powdered mix, canned tuna, oregano basil, one chicken bouillon cube, and dried peas. The result is an explosion of flavor that packs an energy punch and is full of nutritional vitamins. Number three, backpacking curry. Combine dried rice, dried veggies, dried chicken, curry powder, chili powder, and water into a small pot. Simmer all the ingredients together for about 5 minutes, then add some powdered milk and simmer for 42 seconds. 42 exactly. Backpacking curry is a flavorful meal and all the ingredients are stockpile friendly. Number 4. Mediterranean Rice and Chicken Mix cooked rice with pine nuts, garbanzo beans, tomatoes, olive oil, one chicken bouillon cube, salt, pepper, and dried or powdered garlic. Garnish it with dried parmesan, gourmet olay. Number five, beef and veggie rice. Mix rice with diced beef jerky, dried tomatoes, canned peas, canned corn, black pepper, salt, and oregano. Get creative with the beef jerky. Different flavors of jerky can change the dish a lot. Number six, southwest chicken rice. Mix rice with a healthy number of salsa packets, dehydrated veggies, dried parmesan cheese, and one chicken bouillon cube. Number seven, rice and fish. If you like sushi or poke, then you know how well rice goes with fish, and it doesn't have to be raw. Cook it if you like. But rice and fish go together like peanut butter and jelly. I mentioned fish as an ingredient because fish are always plentiful in mountain streams, lakes, small, small and large, far and wide, rivers and streams, creeks, ponds, even some puddles. You get the idea. Catch some. So as you can tell, there are infinite ways to cook rice and a million different rice recipes to experiment. These are just a few of my favorite, all ingredients you can store right alongside your rice. Always cook with what you have gone on, what you have got on hand. All the ingredients listed in the recipes above are things that have been laying around a survival pantry. But if you have access to fresh ingredients, obviously you should use those first. Even after a disaster where, the, where, you're dipped, where you've dipped into your stash doesn't mean you can't access some fresh, <clears throat> some fresh produce or proteins. Raising fish, gardens, backyard chickens, or provide fresh ingredients for your rice meals. Eggs, chicken meats, fish, avocados, or wild mushrooms do wonders for survival recipes. Even just one fresh ingredient can make a huge difference in your survival cooking efforts. Every serious survival pantry needs to include lots of rice. Even if you're skeptical about prepping, it's still a good idea to keep an extra few bulk bags of rice lying around your home. You never know when a local disaster might strike. Just make sure you store it properly. Few foods are well suited for long-term storage, survival storage as rice. Rice is cheap. It fills you up. It can keep almost indefinitely under the right circumstances. It expands three full times in size when cooked. It's easy to prepare. It's full of calories. Rice is incredible. That's why NATO distributes it to nation's disaster relief areas. 
if you no wonder it's no wonder ships and airplanes keep rice aboard in case of emergencies and if they don't they should it's no wonder human beings have been using rice across different countries for most of our history rice makes a case for itself get some wow so as you can tell that was a, a long article but a lot of good information there and so uh hopefully if you are not storing rice in um in mylar bags with oxygen absorbers and food grade buckets and he's he mentioned like they cost 50 or under 15 bucks i mean you get them for under five bucks now i think at home depot they have gone up on them recently but uh you know under five bucks and so uh man there's no reason why you shouldn't be doing that uh so if you haven't go ahead and do it uh and then it's it's uh it's not really hard. Sometimes when you're talking about making mylar bag or you know making food bucket bags, um, I'm sorry, food buckets, uh, you know, for long-term food storage, you know, you might uh, be a little intimidated, but it's really not that hard at all. Um, there is, a, I did create an uh, an article with a lot of information uh, called the Uber Guide to Food Storage. So I'll link it in um, the show notes. So you can go check that one out, but uh, give you gives you a lot of information and uh, uh, even some articles. When I first started prepping and I first made my food buckets, uh, you know I have those. I went and tracked those down because they were really good, and uh, you know have those uh, for you so that you can go check that out. But that's you should be doing that if you are getting into preparedness or or if you you are into preparedness and you haven't done it. I think you know doing this and and putting some beans back. I think uh, you know that's an easy way to do it and to uh, and easy way to prepare. All right, so let's go ahead and go on to our next article. Our last article is uh, from doomandbloom.net. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and this is tooth abscesses in austere settings. And uh, man, I have flashbacks of this because uh, you know I I had an abscess tooth in. Uh, you know, I, I was so grateful for modern medicine. I was so grateful for, uh, you know, antibiotics. And I had a, you know, a dentist who knew what he was doing. Uh, you know, if you were in an SHTF situation, man, that would be, you know, a, a, a serious, a serious problem. So knowing this kind of information, having this kind of information, and even a little bit later on, ha- having some tools uh, that you could possibly use, I think is a very, very important. So let's go ahead and read this article. Many readers of our Survival Medicine Handbook are surprised to find entire chapters devoted to the treatment of dental problems. Visitors to our store are likewise surprised to find dental supplies in some of our medical kits. Why is it important for the survival medic to be dentally prepared as well as medically prepared? A standard first aid kit will usually suffice for most short-term disasters. When you're talking about long-term survival setting, however, you'll need a more varied set of supplies. Dental issues probably won't be of major concern if the power is out for a few days. If you're off the grid for a few months or longer, though, dental care will become an important part of your role as survival medic. The effects of dental disease can be severe and, at the very least, impacts negatively on work efficiency. Have you ever gone to work with a toothache? It's fair to say you probably weren't 100% efficient which is where you need your people to be if you're off-grid long-term. There are many dental problems, but today we'll talk about a potentially life-threatening one, tooth abscesses. 
In long-term survival problems, maintaining good dental hygiene will make tooth abscesses a challenge for every medic. A tooth abscess is a collection of pus that caused by a bacterial infection. Pus is comprised of dead and live bacteria, white blood cells, and debris. Most abscesses are related to tooth decay, poor hygiene, dental trauma, gingivitis, or gum infections, or problems related to previous dental work. The abscesses can occur in different areas, either at the tip of the root, periapical, peri, peri or in the gum next to a tooth root, periodontal. Periapical abscesses are more common, although both can occur together. An abscess first forms when bacteria enters through a def defect in enamel. The tooth's armor, a cavity, or a chipped tooth is usually where it begins. The bacteria spreads all the way down to the root, causing damage to the nerve, which causes pain. Once the nerve is dead, pain in the tooth might cease, but significant painful swelling, inflammation, and accumulation of pus can develop at the base of the root or in nearby gum, soft tissue, and even bone. Left untreated, the bacteria may enter the bloodstream causing a life-threatening infection called sepsemia. It's important for the medic to be able to recognize an abscess when it forms. It is commonly seen as swelling in the tissue at the base of the tooth. It may have a pimple-like head. Other signs and symptoms include severe throbbing toothache, sometimes spreading to the jaw or ear, sensitivity of the tooth to hold and too hot and cold, sensitivity when biting down on food or gnashing teeth together, red swollen gums, fever, facial swelling on the side of the diseased gum and tooth, tender swollen lymph, lymph nodes under the jaw or in the neck, foul-smelling breath. Without modern diagnostic imaging, it may be difficult to tell the difference between a periapical abscess and a periodontal abscess. There are, however, low-tech ways to tell the difference. In periodontal abscesses, the swelling usually comes before the pain. In periapical uh, abscesses, the pain often comes before the swelling. Tapping on the tooth may also give you a hint. If you tap vertically on the tooth and, and elicit pain, it's probably periapical. If you tap laterally and get pain, it's generally periodontal. If the tooth has no obvious crack or decay, it's probably periodontal. Sensitivity of the tooth to hot and cold may point to a periapical abscess. The difference between the types of abscesses matter in modern dentistry. An abscess mainly in the gum, for example, might have a relatively healthy tooth nearby, which could be saved via root canal surgery or other modern procedures. In survival, however, this is not an option, so extraction of the tooth to eliminate the pain and infection is likely to be the end result. Extraction will be the answer, in my opinion, for the majority of dental emergencies in grid-down scenarios. And just a side note, um, modern dentistry, and I'm talking more, you know, um, probably the last 80, 90 years, uh, you know, saves, tries to save teeth and different things like that. But uh, in the past, that, that, that was the answer. It was just always you would yank the tooth. And so uh, we probably would go back, if we were in a grid-down situation, go back to, to something like that. All right, continuing on. Although drainage usually occurs via the tooth socket after an extraction, an incision with a sterile scalpel may be needed to drain the entirety of the abscess. This procedure is called incision and drainage, or IND. 
thorough flushing of the area with warm salt water or hydrogen peroxide called irrigation afterwards is helpful. Give pain meds and apply warm moist compresses. Although extraction, drainage, and irrigation may be all that is required, it is prudent to begin a course of antibiotics, especially for those with fevers or facial swelling. Options include penicillin or fish pin, amoxicillin or fish mox, clomidomycin, fish sin, and metronidazole, fish zole. I always screw those up. Sorry, guys. Um, a course of treatment should last five to seven days. Dosing for each of the above antibiotics can be found in various articles at dooms, doomandbloom.net. And uh, just, uh, again, there are tons of uh, uh, links that you can link to. And so one of the uh, the dosage uh, about antibiotics, that is linked. So there's, you know you can go check that out. Medical preparedness for long-term events involves having dental supplies and some knowledge of dental anatomy. If you believe a major event is coming, consider a good dental kit to go along with the rest of your medical storage. Joe Alton. So fill those cavities, I mean holes, in your medical storage by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. So I know I've mentioned it before. If you haven't gone over to their store, you want to definitely check them out because, um, you know, you have two medical professionals putting these together, putting the kits together. And so they know what they're doing. They, they, it's quality stuff. They're not putting junk in there. It, this isn't the, the kind of kit that you, you know, you're getting from Walmart or you're getting from, you're just ordering it online. You don't really know who, you know, who's putting it together or, or what, uh, you know, they're putting in there. Uh, if you ever go to, uh, you're able to go to one of the expos, you know, survival expos or, or one of the expos out there, and uh, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy are there, you definitely want to go and, and check out their booth. And then they always do like a suturing class. And um, so they'll do a suturing class and other classes. Definitely want to go check them out. And uh, they'll always have products there with them that you can you can look at. And you'll see that it's, it's quality product. So... Uh, definitely, definitely need to go check them out. All right. So, hey, I mentioned not too long ago that I'd love to be able to have a um, a meetup for people, maybe like in the Houston area. So, if you're in the Houston or surrounding area, and you uh, have thought about, because you know, when I look at the the statistics, there's a lot of people from Texas, and so there's no doubt, you know, uh, that there are. Uh, people in the Houston area that are listening to the podcast. Uh, So if you're interested, uh, I'm looking at maybe next week uh, doing a little get-together and, uh, you know, maybe like at a Spring Creek barbecue or something like that where we can just kind of get together and just kind of meet each other and just kind of shoot, you know, shoot the bull and talk some preparedness and kind of go from there. But uh, so if you're interested, uh, you know, drop me a line in... uh, you know, hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or come to the to the website, the prepare. I'm sorry, the prepper website podcast.com. Man, it's been a long night. Uh, the prepper website podcast.com, and drop me a line. You know, in any of the comments, so it really doesn't matter where. Uh, just go ahead and drop me a line in any of the episodes, and you know that pops up, and I see that, and so I'll make a note of it, and and uh, you know, just uh, let you know a little bit further in advance. Uh, or, or uh, not further, a little bit down the road. <laughs> Again, a 
long night, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, uh, the meetup place and see if there's people interested. You know, there might not be anybody interested. If not, no big deal. Uh, you know, continue doing the podcast and all that good stuff. But sometimes it's good just kind of meet up with people. So I know uh, I wish I could meet up with uh, all of y'all. Uh, maybe that's something in the future where, uh, you know, go to one of the, the other big expos. Uh, I get invited to them a lot. I just never get to get to go. Um, and maybe I need to make arrangements one day to fly down to one of these and, uh, you know, kind of check check it out in another in another city. And, uh, you know, meet people from from other places. That's always great. All right. So uh, thanks so much for listening. Hey, like always, choose to live a more self-reliant life, not to be so choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind until tomorrow. Stay prepped and aware. Peace.